Hello everyone, I am doing this episode to challenge lovingly what we've been taught about God. Um, I don't mind God being real in terms of evidence. And at the same time, there are things about religion that are showcasing its own illogicalities. Let's start here. For centuries, Christians were forbidden to read the Bible. Over a period of approximately 1,000 years, Christian leaders did everything they could to discourage, if not downright prohibit, the laity from reading the Bible. This also included injunctions against translating the Bible into native languages, thereby making it inaccessible to wide swaths of society. The, reason for, the reasons for this are numerous, but the main reason was that the clergy wanted to control their parishioners with a finely tuned message that would not stand up well to anyone who had read and analyzed what the Bible says. Perhaps the biggest concern was that the Bible presented Jesus and his immediate followers as practicing Jews who had no intention to create a new religion. The following citations were listed at this website. Huffington Post, Bernard Bernard Starr, Why Christians Were Denied Access to Their Bible for a Thousand Years. Decree of the Council of Toilos, Toilaus, 1229 CE. We prohibit also that the laity should be permitted to have the books of the Old or New Testament, but we most strictly forbid they're having any translation of these books. Ruling of the Council of Tarragona of 1234 CE. No one may possess the books of the Old and New Testaments in the Romance language. And if anyone possesses them, he must turn them over to the local bishop within eight days after promulgation of this decree so that they may be burned. Proclamations at the Ecumenical Council of Constance in 1415 CE. Oxford professor and theologian John Wycliffe was the first 1380 CE to translate the New Testament into English to helpeth Christian men to study the gospel in that tongue in which they know best Christ's sentence. For this quote-unquote heresy, Wycliffe was posthumously condemned by Arundel, Arundel, Arundel the Archbishop of Canterbury. By the council's decree, Wycliffe's bones were exhumed and publicly burned and the ashes were thrown into the swift river. Fate of William Tyndale in 1536 CE. William Tyndale was burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. According to Tyndale, the church forbid owning or reading the Bible to control and restrict the teachings and to enhance their own power and importance. 
The secrecy surrounding this development period of the Christian faith is a Rosetta Stone revealing that it was based on fraudulent intentions to deceive potential converts into accepting strategic distortions of the truth. It could be certain that a new religion supported by an actual God would not have required this measure of subterfuge. Mm. How does all this uh, make me feel? It makes me feel anger, a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. Um, It makes my blood boil. It makes my hackles rise. It ruffles my feathers and it rubs me the wrong way. So there's more for me to say. The Bible fails to firmly establish Christian doctrine. If anything, a book written by a God who is establishing the one true religion would be expected to definitively set in stone is a consistent and an unambiguous doctrine that would alleviate confusion and eliminate controversy among its adherents. The Bible miserably fails to do this. It doesn't state what happens to babies that die. It doesn't state what happens to people who never hear the gospel. It doesn't state what happens to followers of other religions who reject Christianity. It doesn't state for sure whether faith is sufficient by itself for salvation. It doesn't firmly establish marital rules, such as whether mixed race or same sex or even polygamous marriages are acceptable. It doesn't firmly establish whether Jesus was God. It doesn't adequately define what heaven and hell are all about, who goes there or whether hell is a place of torture or not. It doesn't adequately explain who the Holy Spirit is. It doesn't establish whether baptism is needed for salvation or the acceptable manner in which to baptize. It doesn't state whether the concept once saved, always saved is correct. It doesn't establish whether abortion is acceptable. It doesn't state whether birth control methods are acceptable. It doesn't adequately state whether Old Testament law should still apply. It doesn't clarify what will happen at the end times, for instance, whether tribulation precedes or follows the rapture. It doesn't state whether slavery is morally wrong. It doesn't adequately explain what the unpardonable sin is. It doesn't resolve whether women and men should be treated as equals. It doesn't establish rules for the ethical treatment of animals. It doesn't state whether torture is ethical. It it doesn't state whether social nudism is acceptable. It doesn't state whether hallucinatory drugs are okay. This is only a partial list, but the overall idea is made clear. 
The Bible is a confusing document that fails to define almost anything about its doctrine, leaving these questions to disputatious humans to argue about throughout the ages. As such, we can be sure that the Bible is not a coherent book completely authored by a supernatural God. How does these biblical failures make me feel? I feel annoyance, vexation, exasperation, irritation, uh, indignation, and aggravation. Um, So there's more for me to say. The lie of Mary's virginity. Although belief that Mary was an eternal virgin is no longer considered mandatory for most Christian believers, it remains a central doctrine of the Catholic Church. For many centuries, anyone denying this dog would face punishment up to and including death. But, when, but what makes this ironic and unusual is that the scriptures of the New Testament proves beyond question that Mary did not remain a virgin. The following is taken from badnewsaboutchristianity.com. The claim that Mary remained a virgin after the birth of Jesus is difficult to sustain. For one thing, the Gospels strongly imply that sexual intercourse took place between Mary and Joseph. The author of Matthew, for example, says, Then Joseph took unto him his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. Matthew chapter 1, verse 24-25. Earlier in this account, the same author refers to a time before they came together. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. In modern translations, the euphemisms knew and came together are sometimes replaced by other euphemisms such as came to live together, having union, or by explicit references to intercourse. More damaging still are the numerous references throughout the New Testament to Jesus' brothers and sisters. One of his brothers is called James, explicitly identified as the brother of Jesus in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19. Jude or Judah or Judas is referred to as James's brother in Jude chapter 1 verse 1. Both James and Jude and others named Joseph, named Joseph and Simon along with unspecified sisters are mentioned in the Matthew gospel. Jesus's brothers are also mentioned in Matthew chapter 12 verse 46, Mark chapter 3 verse 31, John chapter 2 verse 12, Acts chapter 1 verse 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Elsewhere, the historian Josephus mentions Jesus' brothers. Again, in the non-canonical gospel of the Hebrews, Jesus specifically addresses James, James the righteous, as my brother.
Also, it is widely accepted that the verse in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 that purports to prophesy the birth of Jesus was mistranslated with the word for young woman erroneously translated as virgin. Given this evidence, it could be concluded beyond doubt that Mary, even if she gave birth to Jesus without having sex, later had sex with her husband Joseph and delivered additional boys and girls. Of course, there's a strong possibility that the entire story is mythical and that Mary and Joseph never existed. But that aside, it still is remarkable that the doctrine of Mary and virginity could have become so revered and so inflexibly pushed on Christian believers when the very scriptures forming the basis of the faith told a contrasting story. The reason for this disconnect is likely that the virgin doctrine The reason for this disconnect is likely that the virgin doctrine did not develop soon enough for scribes to alter the scriptures accordingly. But we do know or highly suspect that other emerging doctrines that developed in the first century were embraced by scribes who did their best to change the scriptures to support them. The virgin doctrine is simply the one that got away. Um. How does all this make me feel? I feel outrage, displeasure, road rage, air rage, ill temper. I feel... Chagrin. Um, I just feel like this is all a pain in the ass. Um, pain in the neck. And just nuisances in general. It's taking my time when I talk about things like this, so... another type that I want to talk about. Autism lessons belief in God. Autism spectrum disorder ASD and autism are both general terms for a group of complex disorders of brain development. I want to stop right there and say I enjoy having autism. I don't need to be cured because there's nothing fucked up about me. And I see it as a gift, a talent, a capability, a ability, 
my uniqueness because I love my neurodiversity. So I don't look at my autism as a disorder in any kind of way. Then it says these disorders are characterized in varying degrees by difficulties in social interaction, verbal and nonverbal communication, and repetitive behaviors. Um, Well, my autism means that I have excellent social interaction, excellent verbal, nonverbal communication, excellent repetitive behaviors. That's what my autism is like. And it says, studies have shown that people who have autism are less likely to be religious. The following is taken from LiveScience.com. University of British Columbia psychologist Era Nora Zay and Will Garvis, along with their University of California Davis colleague Callie H. Shrezanuku wondered if having autism, which interferes with theory of mind, might influence people's religious beliefs. They began with a small study of 12 children with autism and 13 kids without the disorder from the same neighborhood, matched on characteristics such as age, gender, family, religion. Again, I don't see it as a disorder when it comes to myself. They found that the youth with autism were only 11% as likely as their neurotypical counterparts to say they strongly believed in God. The study found that the higher the autism score, the less likely the person was to believe in God, with the link partially explained by the theory of mind. In other words, the better someone felt at understanding other mind, others' minds, the more fervent their belief in God. This raises the following questions. Why would God allow an affliction such as autism to exist? It now affects 1 in 42 male children. As you know, it's not an affliction for me, but I can't speak for all the other people with all, on the autism spectrum, okay? How is it fair that a person who has autism does not possess the same mental capacity to conceive in a God? Does God send autistic people to hell for their lack of faith? Does God give autistic people a free pass to heaven? It's clear that the existence of autism and the effect this affliction has on a person's ability to conceive of religious ideas is inconsistent with Christianity's judgment system. A God cannot be this capricious and unfair. This makes Christianity harder to accept. And I'll say for me when it comes to that, I remember asking myself, Am I more sin nature because I'm autistic? Are my chances of burning in hell are higher because I'm autistic? Do I have to repent more than neurotypical people? Do I have to forgive more than neurotypical people? Is God's wrath upon me more because I'm autistic? Those are the questions I used to ask myself. I don't live a life of feeling condemned by God anymore, but... That is something up to how I definitely felt. Um, and everybody, everyone on the spectrum is different because of religion. Some of us are believers and some of us are non-believers. So.
I have been just It says, Jesus believed in Satan, Christians not so much. There's significant scriptural evidence that Jesus believed that Satan was a real person, not some abstract concept of evil. In John chapter 8, verse 42 through 32, we read, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Is it because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Note that Jesus used the pronoun he, not it, to describe Satan. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 25 to 28, he, we read, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Once again, he's referring to Satan as a sentient being who has free will, not some abstract concept. Where this clashes with the current state of Christianity is that a majority of people identify as Christian do not believe that Satan is a unique living being. The followers taken from Barner.com, 260. Like most Christians, most American Christians do not believe that Satan or the Holy Spirit exists. A new nationwide survey conducted in 2009 of adults and spiritual beliefs conducted by the Barna Group suggests that Americans who consider themselves to be Christians have a different, have a diverse set of beliefs. Four out of ten Christians, 40%, strongly agreed that Satan is not a living being but is a symbol of evil. An additional two out of ten Christians, 19%, said they agreed somewhat with that perspective. A minority of Christians indicated that they believe Satan is real. By disagreeing with the statement, one quarter, 26%, disagreed strongly, and about one tenth, 9%, disagreed somewhat. The remaining 8% were not sure what they believe about the existence of Satan. To add this up, only 35% of Christians are fairly certain that Satan exists, while the remainder either don't know or are fairly certain he doesn't exist. Now, to be fair, it is understandable that a person raised in the first century would be indoctrinated to believe in evil beings, but a God-man should know better. And after the explosion of literacy and scientific knowledge over the past 20 centuries, most people today, even those who call themselves Christians, do know better. It is simply no longer consistent with modern culture to, be, to believe that a supernatural evil evil figure is messing with our world. The causes of catastrophes and disasters have been identified as being assigned to the natural world. There's no longer a reason to posit an evil being standing behind the curtain. The fact that the Bible portrays Jesus as a believer in Satan is evidence that he, assuming he existed, was nothing more than a typical human product of his time. Um, here are the questions that I have had to ask is satan omnipresent is satan present everywhere is satan ubiquitous is satan general satan universal satan worldwide is satan global is satan all pervasive is satan all present is safe is satan off is satan infinite is satan bond is satan boundless is satan rife is satan prevalent 
Is Satan predominant? Is Satan common? Is Satan extensive? Is Satan wide-ranging? Is Satan far-reaching? Is Satan omniscient? Is Satan all-seeing? Is Satan all-knowing? Is Satan all-wise? Is Satan omnipotent? Is Satan all-powerful? Is Satan almighty? Is Satan supreme? Is Satan most high? Is Satan preeminent? Is Satan dictatorial? Is Satan despotic? Is Satan totalitarian? Is Satan autocratic? Is Satan autarkic? Is Satan invincible? Is Satan unconquerable? Those are the questions that I kept thinking. Is Satan omnibenevolent? Those are the questions I couldn't help but ask because he can go to heaven and make wagers with God regarding God's people and Job being one of them. And he, he's able to get kicked out of heaven. That's why I couldn't help but to ask those questions. I dare say, why do believers say we got to defend God? You say God is almighty. Let God defend himself. He doesn't need you for his reputation. He doesn't need you for, he doesn't need your help and he doesn't need you. Let God defend itself all on its own. The Bible being perfect. I dare say that humans are ashamed of the fact that they're not God. The biblical one that they invented that they say is perfect. They feel like God is someone that 
that God is their FBI informant against them, that God is their uh, CIA agent against them, that God is their federal agent against them, that somehow God keeps files on us and God's cabinets and God's departments and somehow God is the special counsel of humans and that God is always indicting us, always arresting us, always prosecuting us and always giving out its death penalty to us, its solitary confinement to us too. That's how they treat God. Basically, they feel like God is their nosy, busy body that breathes down their neck and doesn't let them breathe. So, it gets worse. It says, The Bible spawns human violence. It should be an obviously understood truth that a book inspired by a holy deity would engender the highest ideals of morality, ethics, and the people who read and study it. Regarding the Bible, the opposite is true. The following was taken from some reasons why humans reject the Bible. A serious problem with the violence and injustice in the Bible is that all too often, the teachings and example of the biblical God have incited cruel acts by his followers. Many of them reason that since God, who is considered just and loving, committed or approved of the most brutal acts, good Christians need not have qualms about behaving likewise. Such logic led the American patriot Thomas Paine to say the belief in a cruel God makes a cruel man. Joseph McCabe's treatise The History of Torture illustrates the reasoning process. McCabe reports that during the Middle Ages there was more torture used in Christian Europe than in any society in history. The main cause of this cruelty was that Christ, was the Christian doctrine of eternal punishment, McCabe explains. If it was natural to reason, God punishes men with eternal torment. It is surely lawful for men to use doses of it in a good cause. Other historical examples of violent and unjust acts supported by biblical teachings include the Inquisition, the Crusades, the burning of witches, religious wars, pogroms against Jews, persecution of homosexuals and transgenders and cross-dressers and drag kings and drag queens, um, forceful conversions of heathens, slavery, beatings of children, brutal treatment of the mentally ill, suppression of scientists and whippings, mutilations and violent executions of persons convicted of crimes. Those acts were a regular part of the Christian world for centuries. Thomas Paine was, in, was entirely justified in saying about the Bible, it is a history of wickedness that has served to corrupt and brutalize mankind. For my part, I sincerely detest it as I detest everything that is cruel. The Bible has certainly spawned good behavior as well, but the historically significant amount of evil behavior negates the credibility of calling it the good book. Further, it strongly suggests that it is the sole creation of primitive and unenlightened men. Mm.
Um, how does this all make me feel? All of this makes me feel hurt, injured, wounded, damaged, impaired, lacerated. Um, mortified and distressed. Then it says the shortest version of Christianity. If we cut through all the tedious stories embellishing the, embellishing the Christian myth, we can actually distill it down to just this. God, in a nutshell, said, Because I am angry that Adam ate the forbidden apple, I will send my son to earth and have his descendants torture and kill him, so I can forgive them everyone else for what Adam did. Let's put Eve in this. Because I am angry that Eve ate the forbidden apple, I will send my son to earth and have her descendants torture Wait a minute, because I'm angry that Eve ate the forbidden apple, I'll send my son to earth and have his descendants torture and kill him so I can forgive them and everyone else for what Eve did. This is the Bible in a nutshell, and it points out the absurdity of washing away trivial sin was one that is much more damning. After all, if Adam and Eve eating the apple wasn't enough to condemn all future people, wouldn't the killing of the Son of God do the same, but much, much more? When you take off your blindness, you realize that Christianity doesn't make any sense. How does all this make me feel? It causes me suffering, makes me unhappy, causes me sorrow, and it causes me anguish. It makes me feel upset and actually devastated. Um, The fallacy of God's love. Christians find over the immensity of God's perfect agape love without really considering how conditional and tainted it is. The follow is taken from blog.atheist survival God ten reasons Christianity makes no sense. I love you so much that I will torture and murder my own son as a symbol of something I could just give you without the bloodbath. I love you so much that I will reward you with an eternity in heaven, but you have to suffer and die in this world first. 
Salvation is yours so long as you swear your devotion to me and only me. And believe what I say, even if it sounds like nonsense because I told you to. And admit that deep down you are a rotten piece of garbage who doesn't really deserve my love. And if you don't do all these things, you will burn in a lake of fire for all eternity. But seriously, I love you. A God who actually loved us would, first of all, not threaten us with hell. Second, he would let us know who he is and make his existence positively known. Third, if he decided to give us life after death, he would guide every one of us to this happy place. The God of Christianity fails on each of these points. People say God exists. Then why does atheism exist? Hmm... Yeah, that original sin doctrine making us messiah killers and coming out of the womb as as rubbish but to make ourselves feel better where God's rubbish to me that is all insane demented deranged psychotic and crazy then it says Christianity denigrates human wisdom 1st Corinthians chapter 3 verses 18 through 20 we read a very enlightening scripture do not deceive yourselves if any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age you should become quote unquote fools that you may become wise for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight as it is written he catches the wise in their craftiness and again the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile so according to this scripture the discovery of the germ theory of disease and development of treatments and vaccines to prevent the death and suffering of millions of people was foolishness in God's sight even though God himself through Jesus failed to provide this insight Newton's theory of gravity foolishness Copernicus's model of the solar system, foolishness. Einstein's theory of, relativ- of relativity, foolishness. This list could go on forever, but the conclusion is the same. God sees human wisdom as foolishness. Apparently, he wants us to give up on science, read the Bible, spend our lives praising him. The absurdity of this scripture is evident. God gives us big brains, but doesn't want us to use them too much. Throughout history, Christianity has resisted new knowledge gained through science and this fact is one of the biggest indicators that Christianity is a fake religion. Wow. Um, This is all, I mean, those parts of religion are unhinged and raving mad too. So, did sin come from God since God made us born and sin is shaped in iniquity? So, is God 
the inventor of original sin? These are my questions. Anachronistic marital advice. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 through 11, we read, To the merit I give this command, not I, but the, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. In this scripture, Paul is making it clear that this command is not coming from him, but rather the Lord. In the next verse, he reverses the side remark and makes it clear that he is speaking from his own mind. So any Christian who believes that the Bible is the word of God must acquiesce to the scripture. It should be recognized as the timeless command of God that must be followed if one is to be considered a Christian. Of course, the scripture is not followed or even preached in most Christian churches. Even the Catholic Church has found a way around this decree by hypocritically declaring in most cases that any marriage, no matter how it lasts or how many children to produce, can be annulled and considered, and considered as if it didn't happen thus allowing someone to remarry. So if this scripture is to be taken at its word, the Christian God has shown himself to be insensitive to the vagaries of human life and has failed to recognize that divorce is a necessary institution to protect not just the psychological well-being of incompatible spouses, but also the health, well-being, and life of those who are abused and battered, meaning the adults and the children. On the other hand, if it is conceded that this didn't really come from God, then the scriptures themselves are laid bare and shown to be invalid. Either way, Christianity loses a measure of authenticity. So, there's more. Christianity maligns human dignity. It is well understood that since its beginning, Christianity has played a game of trying to convince people that they're unworthy, imperfect, and undeserving sinners in need of a savior. By destroying a person's sense of self-worth, you make them vulnerable and receptive to your solution, in quotations, for their problem. This concept is best described in Romans chapter 3, verses 9-20. through what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one right. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have, to, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The implication of this doctrine is ironic in that Christianity claims that God made man and woman and non-binary persons in his own image, but somehow the image he created is fatally flawed. Making regular people to feel dirty and sinful is an effective way to make them feel needy 
of the cure you're offering them, but it's also a huge red herring that what you're dealing with is not the product of a wise, benevolent, celestial deity. Rather, it is a de- rather it is a deceitful and shameful ploy made by men with designs on controlling people. Any true religion would extol the value, character, and self-worth of the human condition. Yeah, I've always had a problem with original sin because that's why so many church people are addicted to alcohol, addicted to tobacco, addicted to nicotine, addicted to opioids, addicted to heroin, addicted to prescription drugs, um, addicted to sedatives, addicted to hypnotics, addicted to anxiolytics, addicted to sleeping pills, addicted to tranquilizers, you know, addicted to powder cocaine, addicted to crack cocaine. Um, Marijuana is their compulsory behavior, meaning um, smoking it. They're addicted to amphetamines and methamphetamines on this meth and being addicted to crystal meth, being, you know, um, being addicted to hallucinogens and inhalants, fencyclidine, fencyclidine, known as PCP or angel does other unspecified substances. So you have church people addicted to these things. You also have church people addicted to food and eating sex is their compulsory behavior attaining and viewing pornography is their compulsory behavior and they in their behavioral addiction is using computers like the internet playing video games working exercising spiritual obsession as opposed to religious devotion pain seeking cutting and shopping so church people have all these types of addictions they have their impulse control disorder means that they're they're hooked on gambling, pyromania, compulsive setting of fires, kleptomania, compulsive stealing, compulsive aggressive and assaultive acts, and intermittent explosive disorder. So you have church people who are hooked on all these types of things because of the original sin doctrine. So, God makes imperfect people but demands perfection. Standard Christian doctrine states that God cannot allow sin into heaven, but he did because Satan was kicked out with a third of the angels, fallen angels, so that no matter how much... So, standard Christian doctrine states that God cannot allow sin into heaven, but he did twice because of the wager between Job and the devil. Okay, let me get back. Standard Christian doctrine states that God cannot allow sin into heaven so that no matter how much good you do in this life, all it takes is one inevitable misdeed or even a bad thought to sentence you to hell. Christians universally say that no one can live a perfect life, so the only path to heaven is through acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to wash the sins away. This is curious. God could easily have made perfect people or else more simply, more logically. He could have accepted generally good people into heaven on their own merits while sending generally bad people to hell. 
This way, he would not have needed to die on the cross, and further, he would have engendered even better behavior amongst his followers, who would then be more steadfast in their conduct, realizing that that, 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 realizing that there was no trick play to get themselves uh, off, out of hock and off of the hook. Um, Christianity is not the system of an omniscient God, but rather a crude device of manipulative men. Um, in a world governed by a real God, you would be born sinless and be automatically bound for heaven unless you emphatically fucked up your life, not born sinful and bound for hell unless you accepted a poorly supported theology of God who is efficient, compassionate, fair, and loving would certainly pick the better uh, plan. Um... Let me keep going. Christianity Missing Evidence. John W. Loftus, an essay titled What Would Convince Me Christianity is True, answered the question with the following list of tangible evidences that would be sufficient in whole or in part to convince a skeptic to believe. Scientific evidence. God could, God could have made this universe and the creatures on earth absolutely unexplainable by science, especially since science is the major obstacle for many to believe. He could have created us in a universe that could have been even remotely figured out by science. That is to say, there would be no evidence leading scientists to accept the Big Bang, nor would there be any evidence for the way galaxies, solar systems, or planets themselves form naturalistically. If God is truly omnipotent, he could have created the universe instantaneously by finite and placed planets haphazardly around the sun some revolving counterclockwise in haphazard orbits. The galaxies themselves, if he created any in the first place, would have no consistent pattern of formation at all. Then when it comes to then when it came to creatures on Earth, God could have created them without any connection whatsoever to each other. Each species would be so distinct from each other that no one could ever conclude natural selection was the process by which they have arisen. There would be no hierarchy of the species in gradual increments. There would be no rock formations that showed this evolutionary process because it wouldn't exist in the first place. Human beings would be seen as absolutely special, distinct from the rest of the creatures on Earth, such that no scientist could ever conclude they evolved from the lower primates. There would be no evidence of unintelligent design since the many signs of unintelligent design cancel out the design argument for the existence of God. God didn't even have to create us with brains if he created us with minds. The existence of this kind of universe and the creatures in it could never be explained by science apart from the existence of God. Biblical evidence. Someone could have made a monument to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that still exists and is scientifically dated to the dawn of time. There would be overwhelming evidence for a universal flood covering, quote-unquote, all mountains. Noah's Ark would be found exactly where the Bible says and it would be exactly as described in the Bible. The location of Lot's wife, who was turned into a pillar of salt, would still be miraculously preserved and known by scientific testing to have traces of human DNA in it. There would be no controversial evidence that the Israelites lived as slaves in Egypt for 400 years, conclusive evidence that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and convincing evidence that they conquered the land of Canaan exactly as the Bible depicts. But there is none. I could go on and on, but you get the point. That is, there would be evidence of miracles and not just that and not just that the particular places and people described in the Bible existed. Plus, there would be no Bible difficulty such that a 450 page 
book needed to be written explaining them away as Gleason Archer did. Prophetic evidence. God could have predicted any number of natural disasters if he didn't have the power to create a better world, which lacked them. He could have predicted when Mount St. Helens would erupt or when the Indonesian tsunami or Hurricane Katrina would destroy so much. It would save lives and confirm he is God. Then too, he could have predicted the rise of the internet or the inventions of the incandescent light bulb, television, or the atomic bomb. He could do it using non-ambiguous language. And he could do it using non-ambiguous language that would be seen by all as a prophetic fulfillment. God could have predicted several things that would take place in each generation in each region of the earth so that each generation in each region in each region of the earth would have confirmation that it exists through prophecy. God could have told people about the vastness and complexity of the universe before humans would have been able to confirm it. If he didn't create it haphazardly, as I suggested earlier, he could have predicted the discovery of pen- penicillin, which has saved so many lives and they predicted it would have speeded up its discovery. Present day evidence. God could visit us in every age and do the same miracles he, pur- he purportedly did in Jesus. If this causes people to want to kill him all over again and he doesn't need to die again, he could just vanish. Also, Christians would be overwhelmingly better people by far. God would answer their prayers in such distinctive ways that even those who don't believe would seek out a Christian to pray for them in their illness or problem. Scientific studies done on prayer would meet with overwhelming confirmation. We wouldn't see such religious diversity, which is divided up over the world into distinct geographical locations and adopted based upon when and where we were born. Evidence specific to the resurrection. There would be clear and specific prophecies about the virgin birth, life, nature, mission, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus in the Old Testament that cannot be denied by even the most hardened skeptic. As it is, there is no Old Testament prophecy that is to be considered a true prophecy that points to any of these things in any non-ambiguous way. Many professed Christian scholars think these Old Testament prophecies do not predict anything specific about Jesus and slash or do not point specifically to him. The gospel accounts of the resurrection will all be the same, showing no evidence of growing incrementally over the years by superstitious people. The Gospels could have been written at about the same time months after Jesus arose from the dead, and there would be no implausibilities in these stories about women not telling others, or that the soldiers who supposedly guarded the tomb knew that Jesus arose even though they were asleep. How is that really possible? Herod and Pilate would have converted because they concluded from the evidence that Jesus arose from the grave. Setting aside their respective thrones, both Herod and Pilate would have be, would, would have become missionaries or declared Christianity the new religion of their territories. Such evidence like a Terran, Terran shroud would be found, which could be scientifically shown to be from Jerusalem at the time, at that time containing an image that could not be explained away except that a crucified man had come back to life. But the evidence for it doesn't exist. If Christianity was true, most of what is written here would be on the table and there to observe. But actually, none of it is. It remains unfathomable to understand why God would hide away and play a game of peekaboo when dealing with the internal fates of human souls. Although Christians bristle at the statement, it's true. Absence of evidence is evidence of absence, just like the absence of evidence for unicorns. And... um. 
I just want to say, um, in closing, Christianity, big picture. Sometimes it's enlightening to observe the forces that have studying individual trees. Stepping back to examine the whole of Christianity reveals that it has a soft underbelly and a corroded interior under its thin veneer of respectability. Yeah, Christian, the big picture, I say again, sometimes it's enlightening to observe the forest instead of studying individual trees. Stepping back to examine the whole of Christianity reveals that it has a soft underbelly and a corroded interior under its thin veneer of respectability. The following discussion touching on this theme was submitted by James O'Brien. Today's Christianity is not the original Christianity. It was altered and rewritten, starting with Constantine, so that it can serve as a political force. It worked great during the Middle Ages to control society and send masses off to war. Catholicism was not a benevolent organization. The real Jesus, not real name, Joshua and Yeshua was the name, was an obscure person. No miracles who sought enlightenment and esoteric knowledge like Buddha and had a small group of followers. Miracles were inserted in the Bible to communicate with a childlike illiterate audience. The Romans, Jews, and Greeks were polytheistic as the Hindus. Also, Catholicism got its teachings from ancient Egypt sun god, Babylon, astrology, paganism, Christmas tree, mistletoe, Easter, Winter solstice, Mithraism, other pre-Christian beliefs and practices. Modern scholarship, mostly in the past 25 years or so, has revealed that Christianity began as an end-of-the-world cult that attracted the least educated and most gullible people at the time, who, similarly to Jim Jones, David Koresh, and Marshall Applewhite, retreated with their flocks to remote areas and awaited the imminent end of the world. In the case of the three aforementioned cults, they all ended in tragic suicides. Christianity survived only because it was hijacked and modified by Roman authorities to serve a political rather than a theological objective. Whoever Jesus was or what he taught, if he was an actual person, was so contaminated by agenda-latent scribes and the political forces of the time that there remains nothing that could be considered genuine. We don't know for sure if any deed or statement by Jesus actually happened. This is a lesson to know that Christianity was not 100% the ultimate project of an almighty God. And... I have one more to say. So we're going to finish strong. I I just want to say... Closing for the religion part, I want to say, um, Paul's lie about 500 resurrection witnesses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, we read, 
For what I have received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Oh, Cephas was another name for Peter back then. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Falling asleep means they died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Here, Paul is claimed that at some time after Jesus rose from the dead and before he ascended into heaven, he appeared before a crowd of more than 500 men and women. He does not state where this happened or who was in the audience, but he does assert that some of these people remained alive at the time he was writing the letter, about 25 years after the alleged event. Because Corinth lies about 800 kilometers from where this event supposedly occurred, it would have been difficult for anyone living in Corinth to investigate the claim. What we do know is that none of the Gospels all written after Paul wrote this letter discussed Jesus appearing before a large crowd after the resurrection. This is curious because this would have been the most impressive evidence for the resurrection, the one event that would have been able to convince skeptical potential converts. This is richardcarrier.info for the source. Although, also, none of the other biblical epistle writers mention anything about it, even those alleged to have been written by the apostles. Add to that, no historians living in the time and region mention it, and none, and none of Eyewitnesses 500 Strong wrote anything about it, at least anything that has survived for posterity. Christians often use this verse to support their belief in the resurrection of Jesus, claim that 500 people could not have been hallucinating that 500 people cannot have been hallucinating the same image at the same time. This is true, but what is also true is that if this event had actually happened, it would have jump-started Christianity in ways that were not observed in the first century, and it would have convinced the Jews living in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas that Jesus was the true Messiah. This is because the eyewitness testimony would have spread virally across the land. As a result, it is likely that it is likely that there would not be the division we see today between Judaism and Christianity. But this didn't happen further. There's no supporting documents to back up this claim. It is clearly something Paul made up to impress likely converts to the faith. It raised the question of Paul's integrity causes an objective person to question everything else that he wrote. That's how I feel about all the Bible writers, actually. Um... I would say that um, all these things that I read to you and said to you um, has caused me pain, suffering, agony, affliction, torture, torment, discomfort, soreness, ache, aching, hurt, throb, throbbing, smarting, pricking, sting, stinking, twin, shooting, pain, stab, pang, Spasm, stitch, cramp, irritation, stiffness, and uh, tenderness. Um, All this makes me feel anguish, tribulation, trauma, unhappiness, grief, sorrow, woe, angst, stress, heartbreak, heartache, dollar, hell, 
on earth, wretchedness, hardships, bearing, misery, um, and enduring a lot of adversity. I do want to say that I'm dismayed that a lot of churches want uh, bank statements and W-2 forms um, as proof that members are paying what they're supposed to be paying and some of the ATMs in church and if you, you know these uh, if you're paying over $100 they have a special aisle um, line for you to go through and pay all that money and they have the same thing for the $20 those who are paying $20 or more and they have that for the $50 or more, you just go through a line. Everybody can see and they applaud you as you donate large sums of money. But if you have less than $20, you have to give to the congregation in your seat. They won't let you stand. So... It's just... Extremely fucked up and extremely shitty for those motherfuckers to do that. And so that's what I really wanted to discuss because I now I'm going off the top of my head. So I noticed that Demon possession was the wrong terminology for actual mental illness. And I don't understand why Jesus did not acknowledge that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, That's basically, uh, you know, to allow the misdiagnosing of real diseases, it's quite troubling and concerning for me and I wish Jesus would have lovingly educated those ignorant people of the ancient era ERA about this and so I am so relieved to be able to share these thoughts um, because there's a lot of things in scripture that are that are gruesome and perplexing at the same time. And I've come to the conclusion that truly wise people don't believe everything in the Bible. Truly wise people don't believe everything in the Quran. And truly wise people don't believe everything in the Torah. And truly foolish people believe everything in the Bible. And truly foolish people believe everything in the Quran. And truly foolish people believe everything in the Torah. So not not everything, in, and I would say the same thing for all the other religious texts that I didn't name. Truly wise people don't believe everything in all religious texts, T-E-X-T-S, 
And truly foolish people believe everything in all religious texts, T-E-X-T-S, right? So I had to come to the conclusion that when things are put together and assembled by people, there's going to be... um, miscalculations, you know, mishearing, misreading, um, inaccurate writings. There's going to be people putting their us versus them attitudes into all these quote-unquote holy books. Um, A lot of things in the Bible that are against uh, human rights um, I can understand why some people say they're unholy books. Um, I mean, I just feel I'm not trying to disparage anybody's belief system, nor faith, nor religion, spirituality. But at the same time, there are things that I've seen in these texts that I've been doing research. I've been reading. I've been thinking. I've been studying like the languages and looking at specific choice words carefully and there's just a lot in the in all these religious texts that I cannot defend because I understand love therefore I don't succumb to hate and because of that I had to really rethink that there are things that I'll never understand I'll never fully understand evil and the origins of it. I'll never fully understand suffering and the origins of it. I'll never understand um, diseases and natural disasters and the origins of both. Um, I'll never understand the afterlife and the origins of it and the origins of all three, heaven, purgatory, and hell. Um... And the supernaturalism of all kinds, I'll never understand the origins of them all. And I, I, I've learned to not shame myself for that. Um, at the same time, I could be wrong on a lot of things. I could be right on a lot of things. I don't ever pigeonhole myself because I'm a student of wisdom and a teacher of wisdom. Teachers of wisdom are students of wisdom too. You can't just teach. You have to study. So I'm a studious student and I'm a masterful teacher. But masterful teacher does not mean all-knowing, all-seeing. It doesn't mean you're any of the omni-traits that that people subscribe and ascribe to the biblical God. And so I I honor my intellectual limitations. I have all around limitations and that's okay. I'm human, fully, fully human. I'm humanly human, humanely human. I'm a humane human. And so it's good for me to get all these doubts out because I had to really read and go, something's not right with what I'm reading. In the, in the Bible, to read the Bible, and I just go. A lot of things that I was taught was not true. 
Um, I was unintentionally duped by some and intentionally duped, duped by others. That's what I've come to the conclusion regarding the Bible. And, um, It's just something I had to talk about, and uh, I'm thankful that y'all are heard, that you all heard my shares in this episode.